Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hello everyone, this is Andrew and Daphne from Generation to Generation, and our guest today is Dr. Michael Brown. Um, Michael, for people that don't know who you are, although I'm sure most people do, could you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do? Sure thing. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, came to faith in 1971 as a heavy drug-using hippie rock drummer. And immediately after coming to faith, my dad said, well, Michael, it's great you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe in this. So he introduced me to the local rabbi, and that's uh, kept me busy uh, for almost 50 years interacting with the Jewish community. So that's, that's a major thrust on what we always do, reaching out to fellow Jews with the good news of the Messiah, uh, answering questions, responding to objections, uh, my heart's also burned for the church worldwide, so I've been <clears throat> out of the U.S. probably about 200 different times preaching and ministering, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, around the world, and uh, with a real heart to see revival. I've been part of uh, substantial revival movements and uh, helped raise up schools that have sent out workers all around the world. And then we're always involved in the thick of the, the culture wars, the, the moral battles that we face in our society. I do a daily live radio broadcast, so five days a week, and write articles on what's happening in the world around us pretty much every day of the week. And uh, we've got three main R's in our ministry, uh, which is based in the States. The first is revival, so revival in the church. We're, we're always contending to see the church come alive, awakened. And then secondly, uh, revolution, meaning gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in society, and then thirdly, redemption in Israel, seeing the Jewish people saved. So those are the three R's that we live for day and night. Uh, for people listening to this that want to find out more about you, see more of your resources, you've got tons of books, constantly putting out articles. Where can they do that? Yeah, the one place is askdrbrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. They'll find thousands of hours of free resources, videos, articles, and then, as you mentioned, I've written over 40 books, and we've got lots of online classes. So they can find out about all of this at askdrbrown.org. Okay, we will put that link in the description box for people listening. You can go there and head straight to the link. So this is our time to ask Dr. Brown. Some questions. Some questions. <laughs> um, so we want and, to... and he has answers as well. Oh, and he has yeah. answers. Yeah. yeah, he has answers. So I want to ask you about this thing called pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. I mean, you know, we hear these words banded about post-tribulation, post pre-tribulation. But before we start, these, these phrases are based around two things. One is this thing called the rapture. If there is the rapture, what, termed, is, what is the rapture? And the tribulation. So before you, you start defining this, could you unpack what you see are those two um, pivotal issues. Right. So there, there are two different main aspects to the return of Jesus that Scripture speaks about. One is that we will be caught up to meet him in the air as believers, that those who have died as followers of Jesus, uh, those who knew the Lord previously, they will be raised from the dead. We who are alive when he returns will be caught up to meet him at his return. That is, is not called the rapture in the Bible, but that's the terminology that's been given to it over mm. the years, calling it the rapture. Um, the other side, the Bible clearly speaks of Jesus coming in flaming fire, 
uh, destroying the wicked, setting up his kingdom on the earth. And that is always referred to as the second coming. So the question is, do these events take place at one and the same time? Jesus appears in the clouds for the whole world to see him. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1-7, for example. Uh, he appears for everyone to see him. We will then be caught up to meet him and then descend together at that time. So at the end of the age, rapture, second coming, one event. Or will he come first to rescue us out before all hell breaks loose on the earth, at, at which point uh, there's great suffering and pain here while we rejoice in the Lord together in heaven. And then we return with him at the end of the age. So two separate events, rapture, and then some years later, second coming. That's what the debate is about. So can you guide us through this debate? Because uh, I more and more and more, it is a debate that is happening. And uh, yeah, could you guide us on a journey at looking at these and where we need to end up? Yes. Yeah, so uh, when I came to faith, I, I heard about the rapture really before I even heard the, the whole gospel message, because my friends started going to this little Pentecostal church and their lives were you know, little by little being changed, but they were fascinated by all the preaching about the end times. And so they come back and talk to me about that first before the, talking to me about the rest of the, the gospel message. So I heard that out of the gate that there's going to be a, a period called the tribulation, a seven year period at the end of the age. Some would base it on, uh, Daniel, the ninth chapter, verses 24 to 27. Some would base it on some of the chronology in the book of Revelation. They base it on Jesus talking about the terrible tribulation that would be in those days in, in Matthew 24. So that there would be a distinct seven-year period called the tribulation. And that before this, so pre-trib, <laughs> pre Jesus would come, rescue us out, because we're not appointed to wrath and the tribulation is God's wrath. He would rescue us out. Wrath would be poured out on the earth. This would be during the time of the, of the Antichrist, this final human rebellion and, and, and sin. And then at the end, we would return with Jesus after being with him seven years in heaven, where he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. So it would be pre-trib rapture, and then the second coming at the end of, of the tribulation period. And then after that, what we call the millennium, thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. So that to me was gospel. That was just fact. Everybody knew that, believed it. And uh, I remember I, I was saved about two years. And at that point, I had read through the Bible cover to cover about five times. I used to memorize 20 verses a day. I'd done that steadily for over six months. So I probably memorized more than 4,000 verses at that point. And a fellow I had led to the Lord in my high school uh, came to me. My, he said, Mike, I'm confused about rapture second coming. I don't, I don't really see that clearly when I read the Bible. So... I said, you know, that's interesting. I don't know a lot about that either. Now, you could have asked me about anything else I believed, and I could give you chapter and verse for everything. Every last detail of what I believe. Here's why, chapter, verse, etc. So rather than wondering, did I learn this from the Bible or did I learn this from other people? I got lots of books about second coming, rapture, all this, written by what would be called dispensational scholars, those who believe in a pre-trib rapture. So there's these different periods of time, dispensations on earth. We're in the church age now. When the church is taken out, God goes back to dealing with Israel, etc. So got all these books, mastered the subject, taught it aggressively. 
And uh, probably now I'm saying about four years and somebody gives me a book and it was alleging that the pre-trib rapture had never been taught before the 1830s, that it originated in Scotland, that you could trace back when it happened and these sisters allegedly getting revelation and prophecy, how it became popularized over the years. And of course, in my day, the big book was the late great planet Earth. That was an international bestseller. Since then, we've had you know the Left Behind series. These things have been made into movies. It's an immensely popular viewpoint. So I, when I, re I read the book, and it didn't fully answer the questions, but it got me wondering. And I thought, wait a second. When I read the Bible day and night, cover to cover, I, I never saw a difference between rapture, second coming, these, all these different events. And uh, so I went back to reading the Bible. I thought, I, I don't see this in the Bible at all. Interestingly, in the, the early church, in the earliest centuries, the reference to tribulation, antichrist, any of that, it pictures the church being here right through that time until the end. So as I went back to study scripture, I said, wow, the same words are used to describe supposedly the rapture and the second coming. And, and none of the words actually fit for a secret hidden rapture. Rather, this is a public event at the end of the age that the whole world sees. So uh, since that time, so probably 45 years now, I have no longer believed in a pre-trib rapture, but rather a post-trib rapture, meaning that the second coming and rapture are two sides of the same coin. That when Jesus returns, that he will catch us up to meet with him, and we will descend to the earth together with him at that time. And in fact, it's in keeping with, oh, for example, 1 Thessalonians 4, which says we'll meet him in the air. That word for meeting is, is often used in ancient Greek literature, say when the, the emperor or a major royal official would be visiting an area that, that crowds would go out to meet him and escort him into the city. So we go out to meet him and now escort him back to the earth. And it's interesting that Jesus talks about his appearing for the whole world to see and the trumpet will sound and all the elect will be gathered together. Well, Paul tells us, and he says, this will be after the tribulation of those days. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, that we'll be caught up to meet Jesus at the last trumpet. Well, if this trumpet that Jesus is talking about is an event several years after, then how can it be the last trumpet? No, it's not. It's, it's one and the same. A lot of things just come together and become very simple when you look at it like that. And 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul makes plain that that day will not come, the day of the Lord's return and our gathering to him until the final rebellion comes and the Antichrist is revealed. So God will keep us and preserve us in the midst of judgment being poured out in the world, just as he did with Egypt and ancient, uh, uh, with, with Israel and ancient Egypt. That when the plagues fell on Egypt, he protected his people from those plagues and yet we'll never be protected from persecution, opposition of man and Satan. That's a war that we're in. Not only so, I'll say this last thing, then we can probe deeper. The word tribulation in Greek in the New Testament is, is thlipsis, and it's used many, many times, and it's not a mystical word with special signification. John 16, Jesus says, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. 
or for example, Romans 5, that we grow through tribulation, or Romans 8, which shall separate us from the love of Christ, tribulation. No. So this is not this highly unusual word Paul says in first in Acts 14 that, that we will enter the kingdom through many tribulations. So at the end of the age, it seems from scripture there'll be an intensifying of everything, an intensifying of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, an intensifying of the work of the devil an intensifying of the harvest, an intensifying of, of the rebellion, uh, an intensifying of tribulation, an intensifying of glory until Jesus returns. So nowhere in the word are we promised escape from tribulation. Rather, we are promised tribulation, but with it, God's sufficient grace. Hmm. I remember hearing you talking in some debate um, and you said two things that really struck me on this subject. One is you challenge the person speaking to talk about pre-tribulation only using biblical language. Mm -hmm. And you kept challenging them. And, and it, I, I never heard them do it at all. But that really, I thought, yeah, there is a good one. And another one you said was, um, you, I've forgotten what it was now. Yeah, the other thing you said. The other thing you said. I don't you know said, what it was. No, the other out. thing you said was that you've never met anybody who has only read the Bible oh, yeah. that thinks pre-trib. They've usually yeah. got it from from other Left people. Behind series so, or am something. I quoting you right on those two points? Yes, yes, you are. In other words, it's a test that I often use for th things that I believe. Now, it's not possible to say it definitively you know, that I never would have come to this on my own reading scripture. Hmm. But you can really challenge it. You know, when you have something that's so complex and so difficult and detailed or some type of interpretation of a text, think, okay, what I've come up with that, studying the scripture, if I was locked alone in a room uh, and all I could do is read the Bible and I, I could read it fluently in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and I just read the Bible for 10 years, what, would I believe, for example, that the gifts of the Spirit were no longer for today? Or would I go out of that room expecting to see miracles and healings? And I'm mm. convinced it would be the latter, you know, because nowhere within Scripture does it say that, that this is changing or that this was just for a specific period of time. So what, what I would challenge is this. Okay, so it says, for example, that there are verses about the coming of the Lord, parousia. First, it speaks of his actual arrival, it would be like if you're at the airport and, and they say that flight so-and-so has just arrived. It was nearby in the air, but now it's arrived. It means it's, it's on the ground heading to the gate. That's a, a parousia. So the rapture is a parousia that never actually arrives, that, that Jesus comes near the earth secretly and then takes us away. Well, that, that's actually not a parousia because he, he didn't arrive. The word can even be used for presence because it's a, it's a here kind of thing. But then here's where it gets more interesting, that the, the so-called rapture is described as a parousia, like 1 Thessalonians 4, we're waiting for the parousia, the coming of the Lord, when we'll be glorified with him. But then the second coming is referred to as the parousia. So that's what I was challenging this, this brother to do in a debate, is to just use scriptural terms and describe things. Because you have to say, now, first, we have the parousia. And then seven years later, the parousia. Hmm. It, it becomes completely meaningless. But when you're reading scripture, you're reading about that same event. Uh, another Greek word that's used 
allegedly for the rapture, as well as for the second coming, is, is epiphania, which, which means shining forth. And yet this is supposedly a secret event that no one sees. And then the last word that's also used is, is apocalypsis, which we know from apocalyptic revelation, right? So the rapture is described the same way as the second coming, as a parousia, as an epiphania, as an ap apocalypsis. And then the words themselves don't apply to a secret event that, that doesn't actually arrive here. It's an actual arrival. It's visible to all. It's, it's revealed to all. So just when you use biblical terminology, and then you look through other verses, you know, 2 Thessalonians 1 will receive relief when Jesus is revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and destroying the wicked. That's when we receive relief when he comes in flaming fire, not seven years earlier when we're secretly caught up to be with him. And, you know, the other thing is, is that when you think of believers around the world, that, you know, this whole idea, well, we, we can't be here to suffer the tribulation because it's God's wrath. Well, again, God can protect us from his wrath. In the end of Isaiah 26, God says, go in the inner chamber and hide until my wrath passes by. So it pictures us here at the end of the age. It's an end of the age passage. Uh, here we are at the end of the age being told to go hide while God's wrath passes by so he can protect us. But to the brothers and sisters around the world who've been tortured to death, who've been buried alive, who've been starved to death, who've had their children taken away from them for life, who've been beheaded and suffered every kind of atrocity. Is the Antichrist going to behead you worse? Is the Antichrist going to torture you worse? You know, this whole idea well, we, that we're exempt from that, that's really a theology that works in certain parts of the West, but it doesn't work in most of the rest of the world. Right. And the, the story is told about uh, from Corey Ten Boom, and I verified this as best as I could before we put it in, in our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, that Professor Craig Keener and I wrote, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. But uh, she reported that believers in China were very upset when missionaries were able to come back and after communism and the bamboo curtain, when doors finally opened to come back, and they had suffered so terribly over these decades. Apparently, missionaries there had taught pre-trip theology and had told them, don't worry, before things really get bad, you'll be out of here. And instead, they suffered every kind of atrocity, and many of their people were killed. And they said, you told us that we'd be out of here. So in that sense, it can be a dangerous and even misleading theology. Mm. Yeah, I was going to I was gonna <clears throat> ask about um, uh, people that say, well, God's wrath wouldn't be poured out on his church. But I think you've, you've addressed that. Um, what about people that they say, well, look, there's very smart people that believe these different viewpoints. They're way cleverer than I. If they can't figure it out, kind of what hope have I got of, of figuring this thing out? And and sort of therefore they go, well, you know, you've got the pan outs, you know, this will all pan out in the end. So um, is it important that people do figure this out, that they do wrestle with this and come to a biblical understanding? Or, you know, is it OK for us just to say, you know what, God will figure this out and, and I'll just go along for the ride? What I would say is let's major on the majors. Meaning, if you are longing to see Jesus return and laboring diligently until he returns and willing to go through anything following him and trusting his grace to preserve you, then you're good. 
In other words, you don't, you don't need to figure out every detail. And, and when we are in an end time situation and there is an antichrist figure, it will be fairly evident what we're dealing with. But the key thing is this, you know, it's, it's, it's just like uh, there, someone's saying that we don't know uh, the, the race next month, uh, if it's going to be a 5k race uh, through these streets or those streets. And the, we don't really know. And well, get in good shape. Get in good shape. Be ready to run 5K in any environment. And, and then uh, when, it, when it unfolds, you just you know, run with everyone. It'll be fine. So, no, I don't think you have to try to figure out every detail in the book of Revelation because book of Revelation had great relevance for the first century church that read it. That was for them that God was speaking. But then it's had relevance to every generation. It will have great relevance at the end of the age. What we need to do is major on the majors. Are we living lives that make sense in the light of the return of Jesus? Are we longing for his appearing? Are, are we laboring with, with urgency for the harvest? Are, are we willing to suffer persecution and hardship and opposition for the gospel? Is our faith in God strong and real and vibrant? Wonderful. You say, well, what if there's a preacher of rapture? Hey, you'll, you'll instantly be in God's presence. Uh, just like we're ready to die, uh, we're, we're ready to meet the Lord at any time. But what is unhealthy is to have this mentality of Jesus is coming in any second. Therefore, you can't do any long-term planning. You can't have any long-term vision. Your whole ministry makes no sense because you're dealing with the next generation, whereas they're not going to have, have an opportunity to grow up because they're going to be out of here any second. Uh, that's an unhealthy mentality. Or the mentality that says, uh, well, you know, before things get really hard, I'll be out of here. Look, I heard a preacher, well-known preacher at a major church. Oh, let's see. Over a year ago now, it, was, it, was, it would have been March of 2020. And this was in the early days of COVID. And he assured this major congregation that not only did a, a prophet speak that, that it'll be dissipating by Passover of last year. So by mid-April of 2020. So already off by over a year. But don't worry because before things get really bad, we'll be out of here. Jesus will take us out of here. Uh, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous kind of thinking. It's misleading. It's unscriptural. And, and it can really hurt people. So live with longing for the Lord's return. Live ready to meet the Lord at any time because no one is guaranteed another breath. And then have vision for whatever God puts in your heart. That we may have generations before Jesus returns. Look, I was told he was coming any minute when I got saved, uh, November, December of 1971. I was 16 years old. Our, our oldest granddaughter is 20. You know, it's, we weren't told we'd be around here and I'd be gray and all this. So here we are. Let's, let's labor with the mentality. If I want to give my entire life to God, if I have 80, 90, 100 years, whatever, I want to give my entire life to God and serve him with all my heart. And if he comes before then, Wonderful, glorious. Yep. One of the things that we say when we're speaking to pastors and leaders, and uh, um, the minute we talk about preparing this next generation as an end-time generation, we start speaking like that. You can see them thinking, are they pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? You just see the wheels immediately begin to learn. Mm -hmm. And we say this to them, and I'd be interested to know your take but on it. This is kind of what he's... Yes, what you've been saying. We, we say to them, look, somebody's wrong. You know, we can't all be right. Either we're pre-trib, post-trib, he's coming on. Somebody's got it wrong. 
-hmm. And so we say we would rather prepare a generation to go through the hardest times this world has known Mm. and be wrong than not prepare them and be wrong because then we just raise a strong, storming generation to, to welcome his return. We don't want them to be caught out by saying, well, they're not going through. And we find that every, that then you can see people relax and go, you know what? We can run with this. Right. Here's the other thing. Just look at all the verses in the New Testament about persecution, about opposition. Yeah. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. All who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Mm-hmm. And on and on. Verses that I mentioned earlier where Jesus says in this world you'll have tribulation. Uh, talk about what's happening to brothers and sisters around the world. I was talking to a missionary to Muslims in the Middle East a few years ago, and he said, before we baptize a, a Muslim that's professing faith in Jesus, once we are sure of what they believe, we then ask them two more questions before they baptize them. One, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Two, are you willing to die for Jesus? So that's the mentality we're talking about. The same with my colleague in India. We've been together 27 different trips there. And when he does water baptisms, pretty much the same thing, goes through the confession of faith and then says, are you willing to live for Jesus to your, to your last drop of breath, to your last drop of blood? And, and every one of them says yes, but if you're not, you're not going to make it as a disciple in these environments because it, it, it well could cost you everything. But mm. then the quality of disciple, you get, you get a real disciple. Mm. So regardless of end time, here, look at it like this. Every generation that's ever lived until now, has not faced the final tribulation. So rather than us focusing on preparing people for the final tribulation, let's just make biblical disciples who are willing to follow Jesus, whether they're 10 generations away or whether they just suffer persecution that others have, they're ready. They're ready. Mm. Yeah, we had someone from Voice of the Martyrs on, and he was talking a bit about this, and he talked about a pastor um, I can't remember which country it was, but um, it's real life and death situations if they if they come to faith. And, and when they do it, he, he'll often have them raise one hand as a, a sign of surrender. And then with his other hand, he'll put his hand around their throat. And so as they're doing it, there's that physical representation of someone taking their life uh, as they give their life to mm. Christ, um, which is what wow. you were talking about. You know, that very real danger in some of these countries around the world. Um can I just throw a question in? Yeah. Right. So we're talking fairly pragmatically. You know, let's just go for the rest of it. So I'm just going to throw a question in. If it's in the Bible, and the Bible is small enough, the Word of God, we have little enough of it, though there's very, very few. If he put it there, is it not important we get it right? Is it not important that we understand it? Should we not take it very seriously that we get this doctrinally correct? I'm just throwing that question in there. Well, I wouldn't have written a book on it if I didn't think it was important. Exactly, yeah. Um, But here's the issue. Again, major on the majors. What some of us think is important is is not what's important. In other words, this this alleged pre-trib theology which you know, many fine Christians hold to, to this day around the world, people who really love Jesus, fine, solid believers. That's the environment in which I came to faith. Uh, that type of thing, figuring out every detail of the system. No, I, I don't see that in Scripture. Hmm. And I don't see that as the emphasis. 
I think if you do a major study of scripture, you'll, you'll see the emphasis is more on the what of his return than of, of every other detail surrounding it. And uh, the other thing is that prophecy often becomes clear as it unfolds around us. If you think of the disciples not understanding that Jesus had to die and rise until after he died and rose, and then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, there it was, clear as day, and yet they got it wrong. So uh, Jesus' response to his disciples in Matthew 24, Mark, uh, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21, when they ask him about the destruction of the temple, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They assume the destruction of the temple is the end. That's when he returns, and that's the end of the age. Well, it's, it's really two or three separate questions. He answers them all together in these chapters, but they kind of overlap. Many of the things happen then. Many will happen at the end. It'll become clearer as it unfolds. But since we know that every generation that has set a date for the return of Jesus has been wrong thus far, and virtually no one sets it thousands of years out. You know, we all set it within our lifetimes. So every major pronouncement has been wrong. It brings reproach. It brings confusion. It brings disappointment. So rather than setting dates, let's major on the majors. What does the Bible tell us will happen when the Lord returns? What are the implications of that return? How should we be living in light of his return? Why does the New Testament talk to us about the return of Jesus? And uh, again, if God was to give us a specific date, just think of this, that you're living in the first century and, and it's revealed to you and it's put in the Bible that Jesus will return uh, after the year 2000. So how do you think the church is going to live until then? And what type of hope or expectation are you going to have of, of his return? Let's say it gives you a more specific date. I mean, it's the idea, okay, we'll get really busy then. Or, you know, with all of us that procrastinate and things. So obviously God's not setting things up in such a way that you can just take it off on a calendar. People even say, oh, no, no, that defeats your whole message. Because if, if we know that Jesus is coming at the end of seven-year tribulation, then all we have to do is just the moment tribulation starts, start the calendar. Well, number, number one, uh, that's pre presuming that there is a specific seven-year tribulation, that, that, that that's a literal number. Number two, it's assuming you're going to know the day it starts. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus says that of his return, that we should know the times and the seasons, Jesus and Paul. We won't know the day or the hour, but we should know the times and the seasons. I've had people for years say, I think we're in the tribulation. I think we've entered the tribulation. It's like, you've got to be kidding. Unless you just mean that we've been in tribulation for 2,000 years. But no, the, the date setting the counting of this, the looking at every newspaper headline to line it up with scripture, that we shouldn't be doing. But we should absolutely be preaching the second coming and studying the second coming and living in light of the second coming and understanding the significance of the second coming and the hope of the second coming. Absolutely. We just shouldn't get hung up on debating some of the details of dates surrounding it. How do you... Um, well, one of the things we find when we talk about some of this stuff and, and the idea of the tribulation and having to go through it and persecution, we find that a lot of people can become very overwhelmed at the idea of going through that kind of persecution, potential torture. Uh, I think the torture is probably the part which really overwhelms people. I mean, you put a bullet through my head. That, I mean, it's a, it's a quick game, you know, I'm, I'm in and out, you know, 
no problem. But the idea that someone could talk to you, and we know people that come to us and say, I've really been thinking about this a lot. And what they've really been thinking a lot about is being tortured. And, uh, and so they're completely overwhelmed, sometimes crying. Um, and you know, we kind of have to talk people through this. Um, have you come across that? Uh, how do you deal with those, those situations? Yeah, when I, when I started reading a lot of books about the persecuted church, just trying to think when this, when this was, probably the, the early 80s, I started reading a, a lot of books, you know, Richard Bornbrom's books and, and many others. So I'd think about that. You know, I'd, I'd wonder about it. I'm like, I'm at the dentist and I, I you know, th that pain is, is too bad. I can't take Don't. it. And they're, giving, you know, they're trying to dull the pain and it's too much, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what kind of wimp am I? I could never do that. I remember I got, I got sick with this painful thing once and I thought, you're a wimp. You could never do it. Uh, someone came to me, a staff member, some time back and said, Dr. Brown, could you, could you pray for me? I don't, I don't think I could withstand torture. I said, forget it. You couldn't. So just don't even, don't even worry about it. You couldn't. Uh, what you need to do is obey Jesus day by day in the world in which you live. And, and if that day comes, then trust God for grace in the midst of it. But what we can do is obey in the little things. In other words, well, if I post this, I'm going to be unfriended on Facebook. Well, is it right to post? Is it good to post it? Well, post it. Post it. All right, if, if I speak up on my job, you know, because this company's going in a real bad direction here, if I speak the truth, I could lose my job, you know, because of my biblical convictions. What do you, you speak the truth. So be faithful in the little. And if you are, God will help you to be faithful in, in the big, in, in that moment. When, look, in the natural, no one can withstand these things. You know, I, I, I've, I've read that even the, that everyone basically has their breaking point it's at some point, you know, human, human beings. So, you know, the goal is not to have your friends come up with like a pseudo waterboard thing. Let's like waterboard each other, or torture each other to make sure that we get tougher, you know, or let's, you know, let's, let's sleep on a bed of nails or no. But what I have read and have heard from, from those who have suffered in prison is number one, living a disciplined life before that was of great help. In, in other words, living a life of fasting and discipline before they were in prison was of great help. And really having the word in their heart was a key. Really being people of the word so that when they were left all alone, that they had the, the word in their hearts and minds to comfort them. And then in the midst of it, um, I, I've taken strength and comfort in the understanding that God's grace is sufficient and that his strength is made perfect in weakness. So rather than boasting of my strength, I, I boast of my weakness, my inability without God, but total ability with him. At Jeremiah, the 12th chapter, the prophet breaks after getting persecuted in his hometown, finds out there's a plot to kill him in Anatot, and he basically complains to God and says, I don't like the way you run your, your world. And that's where God famously replies to him, if, if you're worn out running with, with the footman, what in the world is going to happen when you're running with the horseman? You know, so that, that's the, if, if you can't take this, but, but uh, God says to Jeremiah, if you can't take a little opposition in your own hometown where people are trying to kill you, how are you going to make it in the big city of Jerusalem? So be faithful in the little, be obedient in the little, uh, over, overcome fear in the little. And um, years ago, when I was ministering in India, once there were there were pastors uh, 
that were facing severe persecution. Some had been killed, others beaten. They had come for this pastor's conference. Some had, had traveled for like 48 hours just to get there and just arrived themselves. I mean, no, not even a toothbrush. And I remember just breaking down, crying when I saw them and thinking, how, how can I minister? What, what right do I have to minister to them? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I leave here, I get back in a plane and fly, fly back to America. And then God began to remind me of the times when I had opportunities to risk my life in preaching, and I did. And the times when it was going to cost me a lot to obey, and I did. And he basically said, look, you, you were obedient in the opportunities you had. You do have something that you can say. So for, for many, uh, they've shown great faith. They've, they've lost everything. They've gone through health battles and continued to worship God. They've gone through hellish family situations and continue to worship God. So if they've passed those tests, then the same God that took them through those will take them through the others. Yeah. Some, um, somebody said to us recently, I think this was Voice of Martyrs, I'm not sure, but they said um, a, a lady was absolutely terrified that she was about to be tortured. And uh, the person interviewing said, what do you say to her? (laughs) And this person said, the problem is she hasn't been tortured yet. He said, when she's experienced it, when she's experienced prison, she's going to be okay. Mm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's a whole other way of thinking of it. And yet at the same time, it is a comfort to our souls, you know, um, we will be okay. There's going to be thousands that stand before the throne, if not m- millions, maybe, who have suffered for him and who have stood strong. The, the, the um, you know, the martyr's crown, the blood of the martyrs will cry. It, it, all of this is, is not defeat. It's actually victory. Yeah. And, and I think to to think about the tribulation and us going through it, if we think of it in victory, it's a whole load different of, than thinking about it as defeat or potential defeat. I mean, it's, it's just a short while uh, in going through it. It's just a short while in the light of eternity. And, um, and I sometimes say on the platform, I say, you know, one day when I stand before the throne of God... When, when we stand there and, and he's handing out the crowns and he's handing out the rewards, you know, should my children have suffered for the gospel, should my children have died and, and to be martyred for his name's sake, my voice will be the loudest cheering of anybody's mm. because yeah. we, are not, we are not giving our children to defeat, we're giving them to victory. And so I think, for me, it is keeping the eternal perspective on all of this that puts it all in perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, of, of course. And, and you think many of us that lived easy lives will, will see those who suffered greatly for their faith and, and see the great reward and think, man, I, I wish I had that <laughs> opportunity. Uh, one of my friends was talking to a friend of his who had been in some uh, Chinese meetings some years ago, uh, you know, house meetings, underground meetings. And some of the people were testifying that had just been released from prison. 
And they were testifying, been in prison five years, seven years, two years. And people began weeping and they were crying out as they were weeping. And my friend said to his translator, why are they weeping? And they're saying, why did he have the privilege of going to prison and I haven't? <laughs> that, that, that was their perspective that, you know, when you think of Jesus and the example he set, and then all of his first followers, you know, the, the most prominent ones, virtually all of them getting killed for their faith. And, and, and then through the ages, you know, the missionaries and the martyrs and things. No, none of us in our right minds would want to be, you know, thrown in prison or rot in some miserable cell or to be tortured. I mean, these things are, are utterly horrific. And yet, when you think of the, the ease with which some of us live with no opposition for the gospel, and very little cost involved in following Jesus. Something just doesn't line up. You, you, you read the Bible, and then you look at your life, something's not lining up. So it's not that we try to provoke trouble. If, if we, in fact, we're supposed to pray for our leaders so that we can live peaceful and godly lives in all, in all uh, quietness and, and godliness and honesty, that the, the goal is not to be troublemakers. Uh, it's wonderful if we have a favorable government. It's wonderful if we have an open door to preach. It's wonderful if we can travel in and out and help other nations. Amen to all of that. On the other hand, uh, many times the reason that there's no opposition is because we're just like the world. Uh, many times there's no opposition because, as Jesus said, that the, the world would not persecute us or hate us if, if we were of the world because the world loves its own. So we're not trying to be obnoxious. We're not trying to be troublemakers. But just standing for Jesus could cost us everything. And one of our missionaries in the Middle East was, was martyred by al-Qaeda terrorists some years ago. And you know, I remember when he and his, his wife, fairly newly married, told me about their burden to reach the Muslim world and go into these Arabic-speaking countries. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, that's a challenge, you know, to get in and, 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 and to find a way to, to, to share the, the word and and uh, sure enough, you know, they were part of a, a, a very fruitful team. And because of the fruitfulness, you know, one of them was taken out. And you, know, you think of the trauma of that. Here is, is a man married with two kids and the, the pain of the loss. And I remember talking to the widow when she was back in the States, you know, still a young woman, you know, maybe late 20s, something like that, 30-ish. And uh, I asked her if you could go through everything again, you know, marrying, making these decisions going over the mission field, uh, would you do anything differently? Do you have any regrets? And she looked at me with a smile. She said, no regrets, no regrets. You know, that's the gospel. That's, that's reality. And, and that should spur us wherever we are, whatever situation we're in, just homeschooling our kids, setting godly examples in the workplace, uh, working sacrificially to help the church around the world, whatever it is in our day-to-day -day lives, let's be faithful to that. Again, don't compare yourself to someone that was martyred. Don't compare yourself to Richard Warren But where you live in your own personal life, in your walk with God, when no one's watching and when everyone's watching, how do you live? That's what matters. Faithful in the little, faithful in, in much. I guess one of the, the big appeals to believe in a pre-trib rapture is other than the, you know, seeing Jesus and all that good stuff. Is the, is the hope, the great hope you have of not going through any of this. Uh, could you just maybe, as we get towards the end, speak of, of the, the great hope we can have still going through the tribulation, uh, that it's not a just withdrawing of the hope that we have going through it. We still have hope 
Jesus is still going to be walking with us through that time. Can you speak more to, to that side of things? Yes, you're, you're talking about probably the most exciting time in world history, the, the culmination of the, the ages. I mean, who of us would not ultimately want to be here working with the Lord in the culmination of the ages? I know many of my Jewish believing friends, like, why would I want to be raptured out at the time of greatest need for my people and greatest harvest for my people? This is the period that Paul talks about, that the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. This is the period that culminates with all Israel being saved. This culminates with the whole world seeing Jesus return in glory and us caught up to meet him in the air. Uh, this is the time when we get to shine like, like never before, when the testing will be greatest, when the grace will be greatest, when the persecution will be greatest, when the, the outpouring will be greatest, when the rewards will be greatest. So if, if you gave me a choice of living at a time with very little persecution, very little opposition, and very little divine activity, or massive persecution, massive opposition, massive divine activity, I'll take the latter. Uh, when God is moving the most, when the earth is being shaken the most, you want to be there in the midst of it. And in all things, he is more than enough. And in him and through him, we are overcomers. That's the consistent theme. Uh, Craig Keener and I, in our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, hit on that theme over and over and over. In Jesus, we are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. So read Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 to the end of the chapter. Read it over and over Read Revelation as the book for overcomers and notice in Revelation 2 and 3, seven times, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. You get to Revelation 21, the ones that enter the eternal city, the overcomers, to the one who overcomes. So don't see yourself as this, this hopeless wimp that's always failing, always falling short, and needs an escape route. Rather, see yourself in Jesus as an overcomer. And, and, and Paul writes, and Joel echoes this uh, uh, previously, let the weak say, I'm strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So my trust is not in me, my ability, my courage, my perseverance, but my, my trust is in the Lord. And he who started the good work will bring it to completion. And he has promised to protect us from his wrath and to give us everything we need to withstand all the opposition of hell. And on that day, we want to be able to look him in the eyes. And when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, we know by his grace, we did it, Lord, by your grace. Thank you so, so much. Um, it is, as you say, it's the time that the prophets of old looked for. Um, I have to admit, sometimes I think, well, I think they were welcome to it, but that's just in my weaknesses. But... Overall, this is the, you know, we could be entering the time that the prophets of old look for, that the disciples look for, and that the generation that lives through those times will live, as you say, to see his glorious return. And for me, I sometimes just lie in bed and imagine that day. What it's, I, I imagine the Mount of Olives. I see his, you know, wonder what is it going to be like when his feet touch that ground, when he, when he enters Jerusalem. I mean, we're talking something that's not a fairy story, something that's actually yeah. going to happen. Mm. And um, when we have groups 
in, in Israel. And, and we are standing there looking over Jerusalem. I say to them, no, 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 don't look over the city, look up. Just mm. look up, because this piece of sky above this city is the most significant piece of sky you will ever look at. This is where yeah. the new Jerusalem is coming down. This is where Jesus is going to is going to descend, and we have that glorious hope no matter what. So thank you for directing us to what really, really matters, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Hey, the end of the story we know and he's coming yeah thank you so much for taking the time we really really appreciate it it's always good to to hear from you and spend some time with you so thank you so much yes thank you god bless keep up the great work thank you for listening to this episode if it inspired you please rate us and subscribe on apple or google podcasts spotify or another podcast platform